it is really good to be here with you. Um, I'd like to, before we go into this morning's meal, um, <coughs> last week we ended our series, uh, Cinematic Christmas, with uh, a sermon called A Pink Nightmare. And uh, over the course of the last five and a quarter years, being here as pastor in my tenure, I don't think I've ever sensed that I needed to ask you and urge you to listen to this sermon. Um, yes, it has a tone of Christmas, but the depth within the sermon speaks to us where we are in our life every day. Um, and so as a brother in Christ, not just as your pastor or a pastor, uh, I would urge you to take 43 minutes of your life and listen to this sermon. We often wonder if God is with us even if we don't feel him. And I had a deep sense walking out of here last week that those that missed this sermon need to listen to it. And if you were not here last week, I urge you, listen to it. There are two ways you can do this. Um, one, you can go on our website, wapaknaz.org, click on sermons, and it should be the first sermon that you see. Um, and if you click later this week, it'll be the second sermon you see. Or uh, you can go on Spotify. Brand new this week, we, we, you can now download um, our podcasts um, onto any device that you have because many of you travel. Many of you are on the go quite a bit. And so in your car, on the, on the go, you can grow in Christ. Um, and so you can go to Spotify. All you need to do is search Wapak Naz, and the podcast of Wapak Naz will, will show up, and you can find the sermon, A Pink Nightmare, uh, and uh, all of our sermons since January 28th of 2018 are available for you to download um, to listen to. But I really encourage you, uh, for those of you that weren't able to be here, for those of you that were serving upstairs and which we're very, very grateful for, um, this is an opportunity. And I would, I would just challenge you, go and take a listen. 43 minutes, um, listen to that. And so with that said, before we move forward, um, uh, I also want to, well, um, in six weeks uh, from today, we're going to start a two-parter series called Sermon on the Mount. Um, th you definitely don't want to miss this. Um, you don't want to miss this two-parter. Uh, I just really want to er encourage you to be here for that. Um, and for the next six weeks, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Um, we are going to introduce ourselves to this man and to uh, the tumultuous and desperate times that the Israelite people were in um, during this time in their history and the lessons that we will pull from that uh, span all the way from spiritual lessons to practical lessons of leadership, uh, character, um, and prayer, and many, many other things. And so uh, with that said, I would like for us to just pause for a moment. 
and uh, hush ourselves briefly before our God. Can we do that? So would you mind just bowing your head? Heavenly Father, God Almighty, our Creator, our Designer, our Lover, our Savior and our Redeemer, our Deliverer, and our Friend, the One who is for us, we come to You and we pause. Because of all the things in our life that we deem important, the most important thing is your presence. It's you. So we call out to you. We cry out to you today. We unmask ourselves. We open our chest cavity and our heart. And we ask you right now to enter in. We know that you speak. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds to that which you speak. Unplug our ears. Help us come back when we get distracted because God I know that through your word and by your spirit, you have something to speak to each and every one of us as individuals and collectively as the body of Christ. And so, Father, I ask that you remove me from the equation. Although may I may fumble and bumble and I am feeble, I ask that your power be great and mighty in this moment. We need you, and I need you. We ask these things and so many more things that we could ask you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, So, for the next six weeks, um, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Um, Some chronologically, um, sometimes we're going to skip around. uh, But if you've never met or have come in contact with this book um, over the course of the next six weeks, I just challenge you uh, to go and read it. um, Chapter at a time, a section at a time. And try to find yourself in it. Uh, And so we begin today. um, It was was early September of, or (coughs) excuse me, it was early spring 2007. um, And the youth pastor who was my immediate supervisor, uh, who was my best friend, um, and still is my best friend, and my iron. He walked into my classroom, as I was a teacher at the time. And he walked into my classroom, as he did every week, and uh, where we would sit, we would talk about youth ministry, we would talk about um, my position, talk about the school, our lives, we would sharpen one another, and we would pray. Uh, But this day was a bit different. Um, 
this meeting was very different, and I would not forget this meeting uh, from that day forward. Uh, <coughs> he was very straight with me that day. He informed me that my position as the junior high youth director, uh, which was a part-time position, was going to be written out of the budget for the year of 2007 and 2008. Um, the news came to him unexpectedly, and uh, so there was very little information as to why. Uh, it wasn't for poor performance uh, of any kind. Um, there were a lot of questions hanging in the air like an albatross. And so, um, see, in the summer of 2004, I became a part-time junior high youth director uh, for that church. And uh, it was the youth pastor that approached me. It was the same guy that approached me about the position. And uh, I knew at the time that that was the Lord. The Lord was calling me to that position. Um, so I, I took that position starting in the, the summer of 2004 in tandem with a full-time job as a, junior, a juvenile probation officer. And so... In the, in the summer of 2005, um, I was approached by the same youth pastor uh, with a new role. Um, and the new role was to be a chaplain at the, the school connected to the church. And the, the duties would be I would be the chaplain. Uh, I would minister to the youth. I would be a Bible teacher, a missions coordinator, um, janitor, what, you name it. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it also offered, afforded the opportunity to be a co-coach for, for the boys' soccer team. And after a lot of prayer and processing, I knew that this was of the Lord. And so I resigned from my position as, as a juvenile probation officer, and I took this position, taking a very substantial pay cut. Um, both positions had some overlap. Um, there were a lot of students in the youth ministry and the school that I was able to minister to and have a lot of contact. I was able to minister in many varieties of ways. The classroom, the soccer field, the lunchroom, youth ministry, in the hallways, uh, with their parents, um, a lot of ways in the community. Two years later, this meeting occurs. And the news falls on my ears. I was angry, I was frustrated, I didn't know what was going to happen. My desperate time came unaware. It was like a blindside moment. And so, thankfully, both positions would pay through August. And so... In that spring, April, I had some decisions to make, and I had to do a desperate search. In the middle of May was our last chapel, and I sat on a chair like this before uh, several hundred students, 8th grade, 6th graders, all the way through our seniors, and I informed them that this would be the last chapel that I would be before them wasn't able to give a whole lot of information because I still didn't know a whole lot of information. And through tearful eyes, I shared that moment. I shared that I would not be with them in the fall. And so began my desperate search. Resumes became my pastime, sending them out, trying to find a job within my training, my education, 
anything from a corrections officer to a juvenile probation officer to mental health, I looked for it. May came and gone. June, gone. And nothing came my way. In July, I had one interview to no avail, no position. The pressure seemed to mount for me. There was a lot of prayer. There was a lot of processing. There was a lot of yelling and screaming in my prayer. There was a lot of frustration. There was a lot of, I don't know. Desperate times. I think we all can relate to desperate times, can we not? We can relate to taking desperate measures in those, de in those desperate times. I don't think there is an individual in this room that has not faced a desperate time. And if you haven't, if you haven't lived enough life yet, you will face them. You might be looking at me and saying, uh, it's been about 20 years and I'm still in a desperate time. That's honest truth. That's raw reality for some. That's why I think Nehemiah is such a relatable individual. Because Nehemiah was an ordinary man. He was an ordinary person at the mercy of the powers that be. Under the mercy of God, but at the mercy of the powers that be. He was a man that was living at the inch of his life. From what we understand, most of the time that we read in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was an individual that felt the weight of his mistakes felt the weight of the repercussions of those mistakes, as well as the mistakes and the repercussions of a nation of people. Nehemiah was an individual that saw the desperate time, the desperate moment, and wholeheartedly wanted to see transformation happen. He wanted to see change. He wanted to see alleviation of that desperation. He was a man that stepped in to resolve that. That's why I feel like Nehemiah, when we look into this book, it's like looking into a mirror. And we can see our own reflection from time to time. We also understand that when we watch Nehemiah in his life, we see how to live a godly life in the most tumultuous of times, in the most ungodly of places, and in some of the most dangerous moments. Through Nehemiah, we learn a lot about who God is. And we learn a lot of practical lessons about leadership. 
about family, about integrity and character, about holding our tongue. This is why I feel like Nehemiah, we need to start this new year stepping into the shoes or sandals. I don't know what he wore. But stepping into Nehemiah's life and looking around and learning from this man and from the people of God and from the Word of God itself. And so I'd ask that you open up to the book of Nehemiah. If you're unfamiliar with where it is, that's okay. Um, it is in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes I actually misplace it. It is right before the book of Esther in Ezra. And we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 today, primarily chapter 1. And I'll have the scriptures up on the screen. But for those of you listening online and on the podcast, we are in chapters 1 and 2 today. But before I go further, I feel like I also need to pray once more. Folks, we can't pray enough. And I think we've all been hit with a velvet brick already, right between the eyes. So would you just pause one more time? Jesus, you have our heart, you have our mind, you have our ears. Holy Spirit, will you speak? We're listening. It's in your name that we ask today. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I guess that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. We're going to learn a little bit about this man today. He was a cupbearer. Chapter 1, verse 11. I skip to the end of this chapter. He says, I was a cupbearer to the king. Which king? Well, that would be King Artaxerxes. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. How did Nehemiah get here? Who, how did he even become a cupbearer of King Artaxerxes? And who in the world is this guy that has the name that starts with Arta? I don't know. Folks, there's some history that we need to understand here before we even just jump into this. So I'm going to have a brief, like, four-minute history lesson, okay? So that we can understand how Nehemiah himself became where he is in the kingdom of Artaxerxes in Susa. Well, this is after there's some history to Israel. We all take history classes when we grow up. The, the Israelite kids also do this. They know a little bit of their history. This is a little bit of their history. This is after Moses. This is after Joshua. This is after the conquest of Canaan. This is after the judges period. This is after Ruth. This is even after David and Solomon. This is after kings have been established in Israel. This is a time in 722, TP3, Tiglath-Pileser. The Assyrian juggernaut came through the north of Israel. And at that time, 
they deported thousands upon thousands of Israelites and displaced them and put them in the Assyrian Empire. But at this point, nothing was really all that ransacked until Sennacherib in 701. The Assyrian juggernaut grew in power and in might. Not only had they come through the north, but they, beca- they came the s- all the way through the south. They came on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And at this point, they continued to do some damage to the Israelite people. And again, a deportation started to happen. However, as we find in, in Isaiah chapter 36, 37, 38, Sennacherib did not get into Jerusalem. The walls were intact. The temple was intact. However, as with empires and powers, they generally seem to have a peak and a pinnacle, and then they fall. And a vacuum, power vacuum, comes in play. Well, that's what happened with the Assyrians. The Babylonians came rushing in in 605. And in 586, Jerusalem was ransacked. It was ransacked and fairly demolished. And again, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, families, kids, were displaced and taken into the Babylonian Empire and assimilated into their, into their people. At that point, there was nothing left of the Temple of Solomon. The walls, the gates, were all toppled and burned. We have a city left naked and vulnerable. And we have many, many people that are still living in the city, but many more who have been displaced and removed, and many more that were just slaughtered. Well, as is the pattern with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, here comes the Persians with Cyrus the Great. The Persians took the power vacuum. The Babylonians were no more. And here we have Cyrus the Great in 538. And this is the first issue of allowing the Israelite people to go back home and to take their homeland. And we see Artaxerxes in 445, a matter of uh, a little over 100 years. Nehemiah more than likely was born to his parents in captivity, a Jewish boy brought up in a pagan society, brought up in a way that his people had never been brought up before. There was no temple for him. There was only a lot of stories for him. And somehow we find that Nehemiah, this ordinary man, is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And over the course from 538 to 445, waves of Israelites started to make their way back home. 
And here we find Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king. And at that point, Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, chapter 1, verse 2. Hanani, one of my brothers, a family member, came from Judah. He came from back home. He traveled miles to see Nehemiah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant. It's a big word. If you don't know who the Jewish remnant is, anytime you see the word remnant in the Old Testament, it's just talking about the people who have lived through exile. They have been displaced and deported. These are the people that remain alive and well over the course of the last several hundred years. He asked them, how are the people that survived the exile? And he was really curious about Jerusalem. Why? Folks, Jerusalem was the center of their national identity. This was the center of worship. This is where they met with God. This has always been the place, the central place of worship. In fact, so central that archaeologists, as they unearth synagogues, they realize that all the synagogues were built in such a way that they were all facing a certain place. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was significant. And so word had come. Those that survived the exile are back in the province in great trouble and disgrace. Why? Well, I'm glad you guys asked. You're so engaging today. I love it. <laughs> Why? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates have been burned with fire. Folks, By this point, the temple had been rebuilt. The first wave of folks that had come through, they already started to the plow to rebuild the temple of God. This would be the second temple in their history. The third would be Herod's temple, which we find in the New Testament, that some of that is still standing today. But the problem here is, the walls of the city are broken down. They had been burned with fire for 130 years. There's no wall. I want to be very, very clear today. As we move forward with this scripture and with this story. In light of where we are as a country. What we understand about Nehemiah's wall and the wall of Jerusalem, it was a fortification. Cities upon cities, we even find in the book of, of Joshua. When they come to Jericho, the walls of Jericho came down. Cities in the Old Testament, that was their fortification. That was their protection, not only from enemy, but also wildlife and all other types of things to get in or out. This is the way the cities had functioned. I want you to hear me today. I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I want you to hear what I'm saying. 
this is not a political rhetoric. Okay? God is apolitical. He is not Republican. He is not Democratic. He's not Libertarian. He's apolitical. God is not pro-Honduran, pro-American, pro-Mexican. He's pro-God. And he's pro-humanity. God is on both sides of the border. God is with us, right? He is pro-humanity. I feel it's very preposterous for any one of us in earshot of me today to take the book of Nehemiah to make an argument for or against what our nation is facing the divisiveness that we see. We are not to make mockery of God and who he is and his word. He is pro-humanity. He is pro-you. And how do we know that? We just celebrated it for a full month. God himself wrapped himself in flesh and blood. Parting the heavens, coming to earth. So that by that same flesh and blood that he may die for all of humanity. That we may have opportunity to choose relationship with our God. And choose to have eternity with him. So please hear me today. This sermon nor this series is not political rhetoric. There's much more to be dealt with than that. And so Nehemiah hears these words. He knows his people, his family, his ancestors. They're vulnerable. He knows the history. He himself is living it. He's been exiled. He's been deported. He was born in captivity. He understands it. And he knows that those that are going back home are just as vulnerable. And so, when I heard these things, when I heard these things, again, these are Nehemiah's words. These are his words that he wrote down. He's looking back over his shoulder and he's writing these things down. When I heard these things, when I heard these things, I posted, I tweeted, I Instagrammed, I YouTubed, I argued, I complained. I got people on my side. I left things in rubble as they should be. No. When I heard these things, I went and knocked on the pastor's door. Said, hey, pastor, you handle this. No. When I heard these things, I called all the first responders and all the masonries. No. No. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
For some days I mourned, fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. Folks, desperate times, desperate measures. You may be in desperate time right now. You may be moving into desperate time later. You may be just coming out of desperate times. But right here, right now, we learn from Nehemiah the approach to our desperate times and our desperate measures. Folks, this was guttural, this was visceral, this was an emotional response. This is a human response. This is a spiritual response. I mourned. I fasted and prayed. He wept for days. I recall um, years ago when uh, the girl that I thought I was going to marry broke my heart. I was in the fetal position on my bed for at least a day. Have you had those moments? I think we can relate to Nehemiah. I want us to see this and catch this very, very closely. He prayed. If you would, open up to the scripture because I don't have it up on the screen. Chapter 1, and then we're going to start landing the plane here in a few minutes. Chapter 1. I want us to read his prayer because this is significant and this is important. Verse 4, and then we'll go into verse 5, which is the prayer. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before God, the God of heaven. Then I said, at the end of it all, this is what he said. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Notice how I said at the very front end of this, Nehemiah felt the weight of his own mistakes as well as the mistakes of other people, and he felt the weight of their repercussions. Folks, sometimes we just need to come and confess. In desperate times, we just need to confess. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, 
than even if you are exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as the dwelling for my name. That would be Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants to delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. What man? The next line was, I was a cupbearer to the king. Folks, for several days, Nehemiah prayed, fasted, mourned, wept. Sometimes he prayed the same prayer over and over. You ever find yourself praying the same prayer over and over sometimes? Guess what? It's okay. It's quite all right. Nehemiah did. Jesus did three times. Paul did three times. Sometimes you just need to come before him, right? So, for several days, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed. Verse 1 in chapter, in chapter 1. In verse 1 in chapter 2. I want us to see something. Because the story of Nehemiah and his, the, the people is they eventually build the wall. But there's something about time that we need to understand here. Between that prayer and the time he has a conversation with the king in chapter 2, which we'll really address next week. There's a span of time before anything happens. Notice verse 1. What month is it? In the month of Kislev. Verse 1, chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Folks, before anything took place, before any action was done, there was amount of time. The month of Kislev in the Jewish calendar, March and April. Or, I'm sorry, November, December. November, December. The month of Nisan is the month we celebrate Passover in. Easter, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, March and April. At the least, it's three months. At the most, it's five months. From the time Nehemiah had his emotional, visceral, guttural response, where he fasted, he prayed, he mourned, to the time that he has a conversation with King Artaxerxes, is three to five months before anything takes place. Folks, the lesson here is in desperate times, we need to allow God time to work. We need to allow Him to have time to work. So, I left you kind of hanging earlier. It was the month of July. I had one interview. And they didn't want me. I felt the pressure and the weight of my situation, my desperate time. It came towards the end of July, and I 
I decided I need to go away from my situation for a period of time. So I scheduled a trip to Alabama to visit a friend for a few days. So I packed my bags, packed the car, locked the house, pulled out of the driveway. I had eight hours at least ahead of me to process, to pray, to be by myself, to think. And wouldn't you know it, it was about 25 minutes later, I was on I-675, and I saw that I missed a call on the phone. I looked at the call, and there was a voicemail, and so I listened to the voicemail, and it was the individual that made the decision to write me out of the budget. He wanted to talk with me. He said, I was at your front door. I needed to talk to you. Would you call me back? So, after a deep breath and a pocket prayer, Nehemiah has several pocket prayers in the book, which we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. I called. And when I hit the end button on the call, it was at that time that I was, my position as junior high youth director was reinstated. And I was able to serve in that role, and I was able to serve in the role as a chaplain. Because neither of those positions could I have done without the other. I qualified for food stamps as a teacher. I couldn't have done either position without the other. I needed both of those positions. Folks, in desperate times, we need to allow God time to work. You need to allow God time to work. Because He has His own time. He knows our breaking points. He does. He knows you very, very well. Allow Him time to work. If you allow God time to work, desperate times become a catalyst to change. For Nehemiah, he goes through some significant trials and tribulations through this book. The people of God, the same thing. And there's some transformation that happens for the people of God. They learn a lot about themselves, but also they learn a lot about God and who He is. If you allow God time to work, then that can become a catalyst to change in your life, a transformation. I look back on that now in 2019. Geez, it's 2019. I look back on that summer of 2007. And it's one of my tent posts of faith when I struggle in my faith. I look back and I go, man, God is sovereign. He's good. He knows what he's doing. I don't. I'm a knucklehead. Come on. Right? Maybe I'm the only knucklehead here or listening. Desperate measures. Folks, in desperate times, Desperate measures should always be spiritually productive measures. 
They should not work in, in opposition to what God wants to do. For some, it may be just holding your tongue. You may have opportunity to talk negatively about someone or something, about the powers that be. Choose differently. Whatever it is, may your measures be spiritually productive. Nehemiah's were spiritually productive. He mourned, he fasted, he prayed. He allowed God time to work. I, I'm pretty sure that was frustrating. We don't know, because he moves from chapter 1 to chapter 2. That's a five, three to five month period. We don't know what happened in that three to five month period. He doesn't say. I'm pretty sure he was probably frustrated. For me, from April to, to July, I got angry. I questioned my faith. I questioned my decisions to take those positions in 2004 and 2005. I was doing pretty well for myself. I enjoyed my job before I got into those positions. I enjoyed those positions, but I was, I was fine. Spiritually productive measures. And so, this year, um, one of the things that Matthew and I have been talking through and thinking about is just this. Nehemiah said the words of Nehemiah. This book, this story, this history, we have it because Nehemiah wrote it, right? He wrote it down. He jotted his journey with God. And so, um, I mentioned my, my journal uh, periodically. We want to give you that opportunity um, to do that. I have about 28 journals up here. If I need more, I'll get more. But we want to give you, it's, th I got this at, at a, a dollar store, okay? It's nothing extravagant. But we want to give you an opportunity to jot your journey with God through 2019. So that when you sit here the first Sunday of 2020, and you have that journal in your hand, you can look back over the course of 2019 and go, God did this in my life. I was here, and I'm not there anymore. I've grown. I've seen Him move. There were moments that I didn't feel God, but I knew He was there, and He was working behind the scenes. Months later, I saw what He did. Folks, we want to encourage you to grow in Christ this year, to take steps of faith, to document your desperate times and see God work through those. So today, feel free. If you want to do that and you're going to do that, take one. It's on us. We want to be a part of your journey. We want to see you grow. Will you do that? We love you. God loves you so much more. Can you please stand? God, I trust that you had a word today. I know you've spoken to me over the course of this 
past couple days and weeks coming up to today. But I hope you, I hope you've spoken to someone today. That today they leave encouraged, they leave challenged, they leave convicted by your spirit and by your word. God, all of us, at one time or another, are, are just desperate. And we need you to move. We need a miraculous movement of God. I ask that you breathe into those desperate moments and those desperate times right now. You breathe your breath of life. And that whoever is in that, they know that you are pro them, that you love them, that you died for them, that you sacrificed, you gave freely, that they can have life and approach their desperate time in a completely different way than the world would do. May all of us meet with you this year. We love you, Lord God. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray today. Amen. These are up here if you'd like to take them. Please feel free to do that. And we'll see you tonight at 5 o'clock during our prayer time. May you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and may you love your neighbor as yourself today. Bye-bye.